You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Nico Calabria started playing amputee soccer when he was 16 years old. He has served as the team captain for the U.S. National Amputee Soccer Team and is a board member of the American Amputee Soccer Association. He talks about the growth of the sport nationally, including the first ever National Amputee Soccer Championships that just took place in Columbus, Ohio. So, Nico, I know sports have always been a big part of your life. So, uh, where did that come from, uh, and uh, how did it help you develop? You know, as just a, like like a younger person, a kid. Yeah, I've been playing sports my whole life. I uh, was born with one leg and started playing sports from a young age. Before I really realized that I was different, um, you know, that I had a disability. Started playing sports because my family all did, and. Um, yeah, I was kicking a soccer ball around when I was a little kid on a prosthetic before I realized that I was doing something different than anyone else, uh, you know, doing it in a different way. Um, but yeah, I just like always loved to move and like, wrestling and diving and swimming and like, doing gymnastics. And then you know, soccer has always been my favorite sport. And I played from a really young age, like all the way until today. And to be sure, sports was a huge part of my um, feeling comfortable as a person with a disability. I think that the look that I would get from, you know, we go to an away game uh, in high school soccer and, you know, stepping off of the bus, the looks that I got, or, you know, maybe I imagined it, but the feeling from the other team of like, okay, here's this kid on crutches that's going to come play. You know, let's make sure no one hurts him. Um, you know, let's make sure you know, give him some space and like, that's, isn't that great that they let him play too. Um, and then kind of the leveling of the playing field after showing that I had game and that I could play and, um, you know, that I was, you know, I made this team and I was included on this team for a reason was definitely an empowering feeling. Um, yeah. Earning the respect of people in some ways, um, so, yeah, I think that people have an idea about what disability might be um, based on their own, you know, preconceived notions. And then sports are an awesome way to kind of challenge those stigmas and show that, like, people with disabilities are competitive, athletic, confident, you know, want to play, want to be included. Um, so to be sure, it gave me a ton of uh, community, uh, confidence in myself and my abilities and you know, just, I love sports. I, I want to play. I want to play all the time. So, um, yeah, just physical and mental health that come from that as well. And I know that, you know, obviously growing up, you played on, you know, a lot of integrated teams. And and so you were part of, you know, a lot of able-bodied teams, if quote unquote, if you will. Um, when did you in, get introduced then to just like the, the da- adaptive sports, you know, concept? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Growing up, my parents looked into adaptive sports opportunities for me. And I was adamant as a stubborn kid that I wanted nothing to do with disability. Um, didn't, didn't want to be considered disabled, didn't like the term, 
didn't want to be around people with disabilities. Um, and so, yeah, I played in integrated settings all through my childhood and, and growing up. It wasn't until I went to play amputee soccer for the first time when I was 16 um, that I had really spent time with people with disabilities or around the limb loss and limb difference community. And it was a really powerful experience for me to, um, you know, really just start becoming part of the community. Um, yeah, in some ways, I think like playing in an integrated setting and having that like thick skin and not wanting to, to be considered disabled gave me, um, I don't know. Yeah. A thick skin and confidence to, to succeed in, in my sporting career. Um, but it was also wasted time. Like I love being part of the community and I think that it took, it just took a while for me to be comfortable, um, as a person with this, with a disability to just accept who I was and, and not feel like that internalized ableism and that like shame about being disabled. So sports were another way for me of, you know, really coming into my own identity and, and becoming part of the disabled community and, yeah, when I look back, there's interviews that I've done in the past where it's like, I don't like the term disability. I want to be called differently. Abled. And, you know, I kind of just like, it, it makes me cringe now because when I look back, it's like, that's, it, it was, it was a clear example of my internalized ableism and wasn't good for the community. Um, but, you know, you, you live and you learn. So over time, I've just been blessed to play amputee soccer, to get involved with, with, um, programs like Move United and others and just see the beauty of, of disability and disability sports. Well, and I think that's just a, a good point. And I can tell you there are still people at that point in their life, right? I mean, we this is not a one-size-fits-all uh, scenario. There are folks that have problems with terms and and, and then change perspective over time or, or some folks that embrace the terms. So it's not, it's not, uh, meant or intended to be like just everybody needs to agree on on one thing or another and and sometimes we have to come to terms our own our own selves and where we stand on and where we feel like we 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 um are at, are at in our either minds or hearts or or whatever it might be yeah totally yeah you know teach their own on, on the terms i think like embracing the term disability for me was a moment of feeling solidarity with the community um, and empowerment towards, you know, empowerment towards differences and disabilities. So I think um, that's the term that I prefer now. Um, and I think just, you know, looking my identity full in the face and not feeling shame about being different and having a disability and having challenges was an empowering moment for me. And um, yeah, it's interesting. Like when I'm around like below the knee amputees, or paper cuts, as we call them in the industry, you know, they're more often than not, they have very little impairment, right? They have very little mobility challenges. So long as the prosthetic is, is working correctly, you know, there's very little limitation. And I think it's an interesting difference that I've had discussions about with uh, members of my soccer team, other members of the amputee community, just about, you know, I, I don't wear a prosthetic. I, I'm missing my right leg and hip. Like I have lots of impairments. Um, like I'm not moving out of my apartment on my own. You know, there's there's a number of things that are going to be really challenging for me. So it is interesting to see how, you know, different people and their level of mobility impairment or or other type of impairment, we, you know, impacts their 
um, their own exploration of identity, right? Like whether or not they actually feel like they fall into the disability category or don't. Um, yeah, it's been interesting to kind of see that um, in, in the different relationships that I've made in the, in the adaptive sports community. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you've played a lot of different sports. So what was it about soccer that particularly drew you in uh, and you were um, as a sport that you wanted to focus on? Oh, God, it's such a hard question to answer. I, I could just blab on. I, maybe it's not hard to answer. It's just I could just blab for days and days. But I think the, the main things that stand out about soccer are, one, I love team sports. And I think that soccer is, is a just an incredible team sport where, you know, the relationships that you have with your teammates, um, the creativity and chemistry that you can find on the field, um, you know, all contributes to like the whole needing to be greater than the sum of its parts. Right. So there's something that's really cool about that, where if you can really mesh and click and trust each other and communicate effectively, you can, you can create something that's awesome. Like even if you may, might not have better players or, you know, you can still be a better team. So I think there's something that's really cool about that. Um, just the community of it in general, to me, feels very both, well, for one, global, right? It's the world's game and it's played everywhere. You can go anywhere in the world and kick the soccer ball around and everyone knows the rules. Whereas like, that's not the case with American football. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm -hmm. that's, that's this part of the world. Um, so the global aspect of it is, is awesome. And yeah, I think like when I look at other sports and, you know, there's so soccer is so dynamic, right? It's like, it's, you have to be fit. You have to have endurance. You have to have agility and speed. You also have to have like finesse and touch and creativity. Um, there's so much that goes into playing soccer. And I feel like it is, it's like just expansive in, in the way that it is, you know, basketball is similar. There's so much that goes into it, but you know, something about soccer. Yeah. I, I think it's called the beautiful game for a reason. And I think like just getting to play around the world and see how different cultures play and, you know, be able to make connections through the sport has been, you know, definitely the, some of the highlights of the lifetime. Yeah. And, and as you, as you mentioned, Nico, it, it is a global sport um, and someone even less popular in the U S than uh, obviously other places, but that's changed over the last, you know, 10, you know, 20 years, but growing up, you know, it wasn't a sport that was available in my rural community even. Um, but uh, so, and particularly in the, in the, um, you know, in the adaptive space, um, you know, this sport's not like readily available in their, in local communities. So um, how do you see that uh, changing um, and hopefully growing in the future? For sure. It's, I mean, just in the time that I've been playing amputee soccer since 2011, I mean, the sport is just absolutely exploding around the world. Um, it, right now, amputee soccer is played in more than 65 countries. It's the fastest growing disability sport in the world. Um, I think at a certain point, it will probably have some of the best, like the highest playership, like the most, oops, sorry, um, the most people playing the sport. And I think a, a large part of that is because if you lose your leg in another country or your limb different in another country, 
you know, like I was saying, like soccer is the world's game. So, you know, that's the sport that people want to play. Um, it's funny in the States, you know, I'll run into amputees and to all the amputees that are listening, I'm sorry if I've approached you and asked you to play amputee soccer randomly, but I can't help it. Um, you know, I, I'll ask people and particularly if they're below the knee amputee, um, it's, it's like, why would I want to take off my prosthetic and put on crutches? Like I do this other, I have all these other adaptive sports opportunities, like, you know, that move United and other providers are putting together. Um, so soccer doesn't have that same type of universal draw in the United States or like almost like necessity to play, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a part of culture in so many places in the world. Um, and like you were saying, you know, it's not the same here. It's definitely growing, but, um, we're seeing the sport of amputee soccer really take on a much more, I don't know, just center, center piece, like center place in lots of different countries. Like Turkey, for example, is the World Cup champions. Um, when they won the World Cup, uh, Erdogan, the, um, like the leader of the country presented the World Cup trophy to the, to the winners. All the, all the players in Turkey are professional athletes and, you know, earn, earn large salaries and have big corporate partners and government support. Um, and the same is true of a number of other countries. So we're seeing professional amputee soccer leagues like gain serious traction in different parts of the world. And um, that's pretty, pretty awesome. Like, you know, growing up, I never thought that that would be something you know that might be available to me or um, anything like an option that I might have. And um in the States, it's, it's also, we're seeing tons of progress in the United States. I think we're a little bit behind some of those forerunners like Turkey, like England, like, um, Poland. Um, but at the same time, like we're developing our, our league right now. We're getting regional teams up and running in different parts of the country. Um, we're hosting our first U.S. national amputee soccer championships at the end of the month in Columbus. So we're like completely thrilled that we're doing, we're doing that because, you know, prior, it was just a national team spread across a continent, right? A huge country. And that presented challenges to getting to play, funding. Um, so getting these local grassroots league um, going in different parts of the country has been a, a huge step forward for the growth of the, the game in the United States. And um, on another, on the other hand, we also have the, the growth of the women's game. Um, so, from its founding in the 1980s, amputee soccer has always been played co-ed. Um, but there's been a focus in Poland and the United States and a few other places recently to like launch, you know, women's only teams and offer a women like a game of their own. So we were super excited to have our first ever match against Poland um, in September uh, in Warsaw. So, you know, we, the, the women that, Joined that team, made history as the you know the first ever women's um, U.S. women's amputee soccer players to play a match, and it was a pretty incredible um, scene. Like I've only played in a few environments that were as charged and intense as the one that they stepped into their first game for. You know, it's a packed stadium with thousands of people and chanting from both sides the entire time. Can't hear your coaches trying to you know coach you through what's going on on the field because it's just too loud you know, streamed on national TV. It was, it was pretty awesome. And I think a number of countries from around the world saw that event and are, you know, working hard to put their women's team together um, as we speak. So it's, 
it, it really is exciting, like just seeing how much it's grown in the time that I've, I've been a part of it. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that too, because Sarah Evans is a good friend of mine and and went over as part of the national women's team. And and you mentioned, of course, uh, and that's how I know the sport of amputee soccer is because of the national team. And so is there a plan? Because I know that you're involved with U.S. amputee soccer um, I don't know, to develop like the local the local level or the club level so that um, like, you know, most like, like wheelchair basketball or most other uh, sports have so that people can play a little bit more localized or regionally against other teams. And what does that kind of plan look like? That's a great question. Um, so yeah, I'm the director of development for the American Amputee Soccer Association. Um, the nonprofit is fully volunteer run and, um, it, and really, I guess, I guess the short, the short of it is that like, we need more support, um, to, to help build our programs. Um, the, for, so the American Amp Soccer Association has two missions. The first is um, offering grassroots opportunities for anyone to play the sport of amputee soccer that's living with limb loss or limb difference, um, you know, regardless of where they are, who they are, um, giving those recreational opportunities to play. And then the other is training the, um, you know, training the elite athlete and the development of the national team to compete at international tournaments. Mm-hmm. Um those are two very different missions. And um, it with the organization that we have now, it's very challenging to tackle as much as we'd like to. I think it's you know similar for all adaptive sports, right? It's like we need more volunteers, we need more funding, we need um, you know, there's there's a lot more that we'd like to do that we just don't have the bandwidth to do right now. Um, hopefully. Um, you know, we've seen a ton of progress and growth within the association and the organizational capacity um, to build these programs. And in the last three years, we have started six regional programs. Um, you know, we had our first women's national team um, match and started that team. And we're also in the process out in New England and in Texas and a few other places of starting our youth amputee soccer programs. So you know, it's a lot of work and it's, it's all volunteer for the, the folks who are doing the work. Um, Nike, if you're listening, we really want your support to help us grow the sport and, you know, maybe hire some full-time staff members who can, you know, live and breathe this work day in and day out. Um, so yeah, there's, there's definitely some challenges, but um, our plan is, is to be sure to have, you know, amputee soccer programs in most major cities so that um, anyone who wants to play within driving distance could get to, um, you know, a monthly, maybe bi-weekly practice at this point. Um, and, you know, a few years ago, that felt like pretty, pretty far out of reach. But at this point, we, we have some really solid pockets going um, in different parts of the country. So, you know, more people are playing than ever before in the United States, and the opportunities are only increasing. Um, kind of this U.S. National Cup, uh, the inaugural cup, is a, is a good kind of example of the fact that we have the most. You know, we have more players than we we ever have. When I joined in 2014, like we barely had the numbers to field a team to go to the World Cup, mm-hmm. and now it's like a competitive process of making the team, trying out for these regional teams. Um, so, yeah, you're asking a great question, and it's something I think about a lot. And um, 
kind of wish I could devote a little bit more time to, but I also have to, you know, pay the bills and get, uh, get food on the table. So it's, um, it's a poignant question and one that, uh, I think requires a lot of attention. Yeah. And, and I, and I, I only bring that up because that, that is the foundation of adaptive sports, uh, and the adaptive sports movement is it's been grassroots, you know, and it, and it's, it started as a grassroots movement. So programs, you know, even new sports coming online that they, they start somewhere and that's where, and that's where you are. And then just opportunity to grow from there. So I think it's exciting to, exciting to see where it is now, but then kind of know that it will, uh, it will be, you know, a, a lot, a lot different, you know, look and, and, and more expansive, you know, in the future. And, and, and so, Talk a little bit about, you know, since you have been on the national team for a while, talk a little bit about the national team and uh, particularly like, um, you know, your role on the team, what uh, everything from like position to, to and I can't remember how many years you've been on it now, but just talk a little bit about the status of the, the national team. Sure. Um, yeah. So I started playing in 2011 um, in Mexico and have been on the team ever since. So 12 years running now. Um, I've been to three World Cups, 2014, 2018, and 2022. Um, I play, I started out playing striker, which I actually didn't really enjoy because my whole life playing integrated soccer, I, I played center midfield. Um, but over time, I, I've moved back to that position for the national team and, um, yeah, play center midfield and it, it's been, we've seen a pretty incredible um, development of the quality of play in the United States and in the world um, in the time that I've been playing. It's like looking at the teams that are participating and the level of competition in 2014 compared to 2022, it's like, this is night and day difference. 2014 was like, you know, very few countries had you know significant financial support. Um, you know, their organizations were very much in their adolescence and I think the just when you watch Turkey play at the 2022 World Cup, it's like this is a group of professional soccer players that are putting on a professional product. Um, it's pretty impressive. And um, yeah, in the United States as well, it's like, you know, we can't compete with Turkey. Um, you know, for our team, it's like, hey, we've got a training camp coming up. Like, who can take time off work and like make it out to the camp? Whereas Turkey's, it's like these guys are all paid to play and that's their that's their career. So those types of things make it challenging for us to compete at the highest levels. Um, that being said, we are, we've really broken into kind of like the upper echelon of teams in the, in the world. Um, this last World Cup, we finished 15th, which, um, you know, included getting out of the group stage, which is, uh, the first time that we've done that, um, mm. in our country's history. So we're pretty comparable, I'd say, to the U.S. men's national team, um, who, you know, make it out of the group. Might win a game in the round of 16, probably aren't making it past the quarterfinals. So, you know, if we got to the semifinals, that's the men's, men's team, um, for the U.S., it's like, that's a huge, a huge accomplishment. Um, but yeah, at this last World Cup, we beat England, who's, you know, was the favorite for our group and we definitely upset them and it was, you know, exciting. And then, um, in the round of 16, we played Haiti, who would go on to finish fourth in the tournament. And we, um, we went to extra time with them in a really exciting back and forth match and then lost an extra time. But it was affirming because, you know, we had beaten England, which is, you know, it's 
you know, pretty much European champions right now. And we uh, almost beat Haiti, who went on to went to the semifinals. So the the team is definitely developing, and um, we definitely have a a great you know generation of players who now at this point have been playing together for a number of years. But um, you know, we got to look to the future, and that's why like these youth programs are so important, and these grassroots programs are so important, is that we want to find the next generation of players and. Um, you know, hopefully give them professional opportunities to play the sport where if some kid wants to, wants to make this their life's work, it's, it's there, it's there to do if they have the, the dedication for it. Um, so yeah, it's definitely where we're rising and so is the rest of the world. And it's, it's a race right now to see who can get there, like, you know, get the house in order and make sure that like all these people are able to play on a regular basis, regular competitions, domestically, regular international competitions. And yeah, all that stuff comes with a big price tag. So especially in the United States where, you know, if we want to get our players together for a training camp um, and not have the players take on significant costs, it's somewhere between like 20 and $30,000. Um, you know, England, they all just hop on a train or a bus and they get together and it's the price tag is much smaller. Um, so it's, yeah, again, I'm just Nike. I hope you're listening and <laughs> I hope you, uh, you want to get involved, but it's, it's, it's definitely exciting. The, the sport's growing a ton and the level of play is rising here and around the world. Yeah. And it's really tough when there's, you know, when there's basically somewhat not, when there's really not like international parity, right. And, and when any, any elite athlete that, that I, that I've talked to that, is able to make this basically their full-time job, um, you know, that has the support and the backing and, and an ability to be able to concentrate, you know, six, seven days a week on, on performance and on, and as a, whether it's a team sport or individual sport, that, that, that is what is required. Right. So when you talk about teams like Turkey that do pay their athletes, uh, you know, it's, it's a challenge. Now, have you, have you seen any, um, like I'll just use like, National Wheelchair Basketball Association, as an example. Obviously, there's a European professional league, and many U.S. athletes go over and play. Have you seen any? Have any U.S. athletes gone to to play where, where basically they are part of a, a professional league? So at this point, no. Um, but there is opportunity for people to go play in Turkey, um, Turkey, Poland. Um, those are the, the two places that I think are kind of the farthest ahead in terms of the, you know, ability to play professionally, but, um, not at this point, I considered going to Turkey at one point, but, um, I think my calling is here in the United States to help get this program started here. And, you know, I don't think, I don't think they'll, that I'll reap the benefits of that as an athlete. Um, but I hopefully the next generation will, and you know, it'll keep you, keep the sport in the United States moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you presented at our last um, uh, educational conference and, and, and you, and I love the, your, the premise behind your, your talk about perceptions of media. And it goes back to even like our earlier conversation uh, just a bit ago about, you know, perceptions around disability. I'd love for you to maybe in a, a brief, you know, a couple minutes or in a nutshell, talk a little bit about, um, you know, that, um, uh, I, I guess the lack of a better word that you know, kind of that uh, stereotype or perceptions of of, uh, of people with with disability within media. Sure. Um, 
Yeah, I think the, the premise stems from the idea that historically people with disabilities are represented in news media or sports media in one of two ways. Um, something that's either um, pitiable and something that requires sympathy or, and that's kind of like on the negative side. And then like intended to be positive framing the disabled athlete or person as inspirational for um, for whatever it is. And essentially that both of those um, narratives have flaws um, and both are damaging to mm -hmm. or objectifying to the disabled community. So in the case of what Stella Young in her TED Talk um, coins inspiration porn, um, she tells this story about kind of like getting an award um, from the school for what she didn't, she didn't understand why she would be winning this award because she didn't feel like she had done anything award worthy. Um, and it was kind of like tokenizing in a way of saying like, we're going to award this person with a disability just for having gotten through the school year. Um, and I think that, yeah, it's essentially that notion where it's like, yeah, the number of times where I'm just walking, going through my daily life where I'm playing soccer or, you know, someone's like, can I take a picture of you? Or like, can I, um, you know, I just want to let you know that like, you're my inspiration or something. And it's, it's tough to know how to respond because the immediate reaction is like, one, I feel othered in this moment. Like, I feel kind of like I'm standing out just for doing the things that I want to do. And at the same time, that person is trying to be, um, is well-intended and is trying to say something that's positive and, you know, give you a compliment. So it's tricky because I think, um, you know, it stems from a good place, but the way that I feel when I receive it is other. Um, and that's exhausting. Like it really is tiresome to, to be othered all the time, whether I'm in the grocery store and someone just comes up to me and is like, I just want you to know that you're amazing. It's like, I don't, <laughs> I, I appreciate you. Um, but at the same time, like I'm just trying to do my grocery shopping, you know? So um really the um in the talk that i gave at move united uh education conference the, the big I, big takeaway i was trying to leave people with was this idea that when you, you are in control of your own narrative and you need to be explicit about what that narrative is if you don't want the story told by somebody else so in the case of amputee soccer we like reviewed a number of tests um you know, pieces of uh, news media that covered the soccer team, kind of going back from, you know, really the pity and the inspiration narratives, um, you know, a number of years ago towards um, a, a more recent interview that I gave where I just explicitly said, we are tired of the inspiration narrative. If you, like, really, if you want to see the sport grow, here are the barriers that we have to access the sport and to be included in the sport, and they are financial. Um, you know, this training camp that you're watching right now costs about $20,000. Um, and trying to frame the narrative towards, um, those with access and inclusion, uh, in order to just, you know, get more people playing and remove more barriers to entry. So, um, yeah, it's tricky because like I was saying, like it's coming from a good place and people, people want to give you a compliment. But, uh, I think the interesting thing is like, when someone gives you a compliment because you have a disability and you're walking down the street or going through a run or, you know, something that's pretty normal, right? Um, 
I think what people don't think about is, is what the experience is like for the person with a disability. Because the person that's giving the compliment is, is like, oh, I'm feeling good about myself for saying something kind to someone else. Um, mm-hmm. And the way that it's really kind of interpreted or experienced by the person with a disability can be like, yeah, yeah, I know. I've got a disability. Thanks for, you know, thanks for pointing it out in a kind way. And going from one of those to the next, you know, over and over and over again, um, it's taxing. So, yeah, definitely a, a tricky subject to to discuss in some ways, but um, yeah, that was the main, the main focus of the, the talk that I gave. And, and I appreciate you summarizing that because it was a longer, obviously a longer talk. <laughs> and, and I, I cringe, you know, when my colleagues in the media space, since I'm in that space, um, you know, always start out a, a new segment with here's an inspiring story, right. For, for someone uh, with a disability, just doing, as you said, ordinary or normal activities uh, or even playing sports, which is a universal and, and human right. So, um, anything Nico that I've not asked you about that you want to share? Um, sure. I, um, I was just on a trip with this group called um, Romp Global. So they're they're the Range of Motion Project, and they basically are fighting for access for prosthetic care um, to resource poor communities. Um, I was just in Ecuador, and we climbed Mount Cayambe, um, which is just under nineteen thousand feet, and it was with you know a bunch of different athletes and um, prosthetists and volunteers, and um, it was pretty amazing. And it, I, I think in the States, one of the things that, um, maybe not in all of us in the United States, but um, largely in the developed world, I think there is a, there's privilege around mobility. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I climbed Kilimanjaro in 2007, and I remember going to Tanzania and seeing the state of disability um, when I was there and feeling like, totally shocked with the way that disabled people were treated and the conditions that they were living in. Um, and, you know, mobility should be a human right as well. And there's definitely a privilege um, issue that's taking place around the world. Um, you know, the number of amputees is growing. Um, the number of prosthetists and people who are providing care is slowly growing, but not at the same rate that is needed to um, provide care um, that's going to offer people, you know, independence, mobility, um, all of the, you know, mental and physical health benefits that come with um, living an active lifestyle. Um, so it was it was pretty cool to be a part of that um, group, and I hope to to go again in the future. And you know, we raised close to one hundred thousand dollars this year to, um, you know, provide prosthetic care to the people of Ecuador and Guatemala. So. Um, yeah, it's, it's something if anyone's looking to get involved, um, either as a volunteer or um, as someone who wants to make a donation or as a limb different athlete that wants to go tackle a mountain. Um, I just wanted to give a plug for that. It was just absolutely incredible. And I think the work that they're doing is, is super, super important and powerful. That's awesome. 